What does arrogance look like? Can anybody give me a picture of that, a person or a situation? Yes. What does arrogance look like? It could be a person. Because some people... Oh, very good. <laughs> okay, that's good. Okay. All right. Thanks. All right. Moving on. Who else? Anybody else? Who looks like confidence? I mean, arrogance to you. Charlie Sheen, trusting in yourself. Anybody else? Don't be afraid. You might have the answer. An overabundance of confidence. Yeah, and it's kind of pouring all over you like Mrs. What is that syrup? Mrs. Butterworth, yeah, I don't care for Aunt Jemima. I'm the Mrs. Butterworth kind of guy. But, uh, you know, just kind of all over. You know, syrup's good on pancakes, but it isn't good on the fingers. You know? I imagine Kobe Bryant, like at the end of a game, not wanting anyone else but himself to take that shot. Oh. Okay. Anybody remember Michael Jordan? <clears throat> okay. Early in Michael Jordan's career, he was arrogant. Everything was about him. Air Jordan flying to the basket. And how many championships did his team win? Zero. Now, thank you, though. We'll get there. <laughs> and um, the guy who's the head coach now for the Philadelphia 76ers, his name always eludes me. Collins. Yeah, Doug Collins was the coach for the Bulls when he was a young guy not much older than Michael Jordan, and Michael didn't like him. And uh, Michael said that uh, the first game that he coached, uh, Collins was so, he was so scared and so just freaked out that he was chewing his gum so hard that he had that white residue coming down his face. You know what I'm talking about? You can do that with bubble gum, this kind of white stuff. And Michael says, I went over, or it's about, you know, there's two or three seconds to go in the game and Michael said, uh, he went over, Collins called timeout, and he went over and uh, he saw the coach like that, and he said, I threw him a towel, said, wipe your face, coach. I'm not going to let you lose your first game. And he went out and hit the shot and won the game. Now, it's important that we distinguish between arrogance and confidence. There's a difference between the two. Um, Arrogant is the guy after the team won the ball game and he's on the field with that really strange face going, we're number one. You remember, you know, you know the guy I'm talking about? Just, you're almost, you're embarrassed for his mother. <laughs> I mean, really, what did he do? He was there. Now, confidence is what you want the quarterback to have when it's fourth and one from the, from the one yard line. You want him to be confident. Confident in what? Confident in the play that's been called. Confident in the other players around him. And confident in his own ability to run the play. There's a difference between confidence and arrogance. Arrogance says, look at me. Confidence isn't really particularly interested in that. Arrogance 
puts other people down by lifting itself up. Confidence actually gives courage to people around you. Have you ever been in a, in, a, in, a, in a worship service or in a setting where someone is going to perform and they're not very good at it? And they get up or they get up to give their testimony and they go, well, I don't know why Neil asked me to do this. I don't really have anything to say. I, and then they proceed in saying it. You ever been in that situation? And the whole time you're like, Oh, 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 it's uncomfortable because you're trying to help them in their singing and they really shouldn't be singing by themselves. When I, when I was your age, a lot of guys wrote their own songs and they get up and they go, now this is a song that God gave me. And I'm going, oh, no. <laughs> Anybody know what I'm talking about here? And you're like, man, if God gave you that, you must have heard something wrong. <laughs> but I'm thinking about the person who's up there and, and you're just anguishing because they're not, they shouldn't really be a soloist. And you're helping them along. And you're so glad when they're done. You're like, and you're worn out. <laughs> and, but confidence is the kind of thing that when the person gets up to do it, they don't apologize because they were asked they don't say they don't have anything to say. They don't try to get you to excuse them before they did it. You know, that's kind of what they're doing. But they just get up and do it. They don't make a big deal out of it. <coughs> they just do it. Confidence is kind of like that. You do what you're asked to do. You do what you can do. Now, if these guys weren't at least a little bit confident in what they were playing, they'd mess up because they'd be worrying about it the whole time. Now, you need to work and get better at what you do. We're going to talk about that today. But it's very important. When you're confident, you, you, you don't, it doesn't, what you're doing, you don't have to get everybody pat you on the back for that. You don't have to be seen as the great one. You just go about your business and do what, you, what you're called to do, what you're gifted to do with all your might, and just do it and stay after it. It helps others relax. Arrogance is in your face. It needs to be seen. And again, it discourages other people. And those are the kind of people we really want to get. You know, I grew up as a Chicago Bulls fan. But over the last couple of years, the Oklahoma City Thunder has really won my heart. You know those guys, young guys? You know who I don't like? The Miami Heat. <laughs> when they, the three of them, decided to come together, which, that's not fair anyway. <laughs> that, you remember how arrogant they were? We're not going to just win one championship. And they had the smoke coming up behind them, you know. <laughs> They're like they're floating in the air there, you know. Here's Superman and Spider-Man, you know, and Iron Man. And they're all there together. And, you know, they just exuded arrogance. You know, 
not we'd like to win a championship and we're going to do everything we can. We're going to do it and we're going to put it in your face. And I just want to see them lose. <laughs> I don't care who they lose to. And in fact, did you know that now the Dallas Cowboys are not very good anymore, but they used to be America's team. But if you weren't for America's team, and by the way, how did they get to be America's team? Actually, when the Dallas Cowboys were losing, the ratings went up because people tuned in to watch them lose, to pull against them. I used to be the chaplain for the Texas Tech Red Raiders, and one year we were in, the, in a bowl game in Houston, and we were playing Navy. And this was when the war was, you know, Desert Storm was happening and everything, and we're there, and, you know, our band can't come on the field or anything, but the Naval Band does, and they all march out, you know, and big deal. President Bush comes on the big screens and cheers them on to victory and talks about how they're going to win. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, I'm an American too? <laughs> and we're looking up at this, and, and every time there's a break in the action, it's an advertisement for the Naval Academy. And I remember finally our quarterback came over, and he got all the guys together and said, and they're all against us. We're the red team. Let's kill them. You know, like, you know, and, and, and it was because they, had, they were getting all the pub. You know what I'm saying? And now it wasn't, we just wanted to beat Navy. We're, you know, he said, he said, the whole country's against us. Let's get them. You know, and, and uh, on one of the plays, uh, one of their guys hit our quarterback so hard he knocked a tooth out. And our quarterback went over the sidelines and spit it out and then came to the next play and smiled at him. And then they did another thing we were really criticized for. We scored a touchdown, and all the guys circled around and threw the ball up in the air. When the ball hit the ground, they all fell down. <laughs> yeah, we were the red team. <laughs> but arrogance, you know, that's something we just want to, don't we just want to kind of knock it down? But see, when a person's confident, you don't even recognize it. You're just comfortable. They do what they do, and they do it well. They don't make a big deal out of it. But you know, some of us, man, you know, we're so insecure. Again, I don't know why they asked me to sing. And you know, when we're insecure, we're weird. We're just weird. We say weird things. We act weird ways. <laughs> you know, our, our sentences are broken up in places where they shouldn't be broken up at. And we're just weird and, and insecurity. And what I have found through the years is that a lot of people, particularly believers, are insecure. And a lot of preachers are insecure. A lot of, I think it's a, actually, I think it's a, uh, it's a pandemic among Christians is of insecurity, not secure, because we've gotten this, and I think part of it is we've got this arrogance thing and confidence thing confused. Confidence, you just go and do what you have to do, and you do it, and you do it well, and you don't make a big deal out of it. You just go and do it. Hence, the quarterback on the five. You don't want him insecure. Insecurity causes us to make mistakes. It causes us to worry too much and think too much. 
It causes us not to prepare because we're afraid to prepare because we're afraid we'll fail. Have you done that? You don't prepare for that test because you're afraid you'll fail it and you've succeeded in doing what you thought you would do. And then you can say, well, because you're afraid if you tried and failed, it's easier not to try and fail. And some of you are doing that. You know, courage, um, I think I got this quote right. Um, John Wayne said that uh, confidence or courage is being scared and saddling up anyway. You've got a job to do. People are counting on me, and I'm going to do it. Nobody has to give me an award for that. They don't have to clap for me. I'm going to do it. You know, confidence is not the absence of fear, but it's a deep trust in God and, who he, and, and his presence in me and what he's designed me to do and doing it. God has gifted some of you to do some things he's not gifted me to do. But the things he has gifted me to do, I need to be confident in his ability to do those through me. And I need to be confident in the gifts that he's given me and how he's developed them to do it. I need to take confidence and go and not be insecure or arrogant about it a lot. I, I know some preachers who are arrogant. Some ministers are some of the most arrogant people on the planet. Am I right, Neil? Am I right, Brett? And it stinks. But then there's some guys who are confident. I like listening to them. I don't want them up there apologizing. I want them to go after it, don't you? When I come to hear that person, if they're a singer or, a, or an entertainer or an athlete, I'm not coming. I'm coming to see them do the best of what they can do. And I'm counting on that. And sometimes we're so insecure that we don't give it our best. We're so afraid we'll fail that we have a, we have a self-fulfilling prophecy in that. And if you're going to widen your world, <clears throat> you're going to have to get confident about some things, guys. Not arrogant, but confident. And you need to know the difference between the two because I think there's, a, there's confusion on that. You need to... To, to know what it is you need to know and get good at what God has designed you to get good at and go for it. And go for it. Am I making sense? And there are some things that, that it, it, this kind of thing begins with understanding who I am. Who I am. You see, at the moment I received Jesus, something, I was given a new identity. I'm not the old guy that God's kind of remodeling. I am a brand new person. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the body or in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself or delivered himself up for me. You see, when you came to know Christ, the old you, God bumped him off. 
He is gone. Remember, Jesus talked about how you need to be born again. And you need to know that you have a new identity in Christ. The old me is gone. I actually have new spiritual DNA. And God has a witness protection program, and he's put me in it. You're in God's witness protection program. You're not the old person trying to become the new person. You have a new identity in Christ. I want to show you some verses in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. You all still with me? If you're going, you know, Kobe Bryant is both confident and arrogant. He's got both of them going. It kind of depends, right? Are you with me on that? If you're a big basketball fan, probably Tim Duncan is confident. He doesn't have to get in front of the screen and tell you how good he is. He just goes out and does it. Now, you need to see this. This is really important stuff here. In verses, verse 1 through 4, it says, Since then, you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Now, all you English majors, I want you to look at the tense of the verbs here. I want you to notice the language. You have been raised with Christ. Past, present, or future? Hello? Past. Past. So, this has already happened. You haven't realized it all yet, but it's already happened. Now, check this out. So it says, the, and the idea here is because since this has happened, well, you need to set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not earthly things. Now stay with me. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. First part of that, past, present, or future. This has already happened. For you died. You. When I came to know Jesus as a college freshman, the old John Strapazon died. He's gone. And he said, and, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God, past, present, or future. Yeah. Right now. My life right now is already hidden with Jesus. Now, catch this. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now, let me get something out of my pocket here. Okay, this is you. What the Bible's saying is, and check this out, when Jesus appears, what's going to happen? You will appear because you're a part of him. And see, he says here, when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with, with him in glory. For you died and your life is now hidden in Christ in God. And when Jesus shows up, who else shows up? Yeah, if you know Jesus today, you do. This is all done already. You are, you're a new creation. God has given you a new identity. Now, look, you can act like the old person, but you can never be them again. This is why you can't, once you have your salvation, you can't lose your salvation. 
because the old you died. Who are you going to be then? John, number two. New and less improved. Because when you came to know Jesus, you got a new identity. Now let me reiterate, you can act like the old person, you can think like the old person if you want to, but you can never be that person again. Because you're brand new. You didn't do this. God did this. So the first thing you need to understand, if you're going to widen your world, is you've got to understand who you are, that you've been given a new identity in Jesus. You're not that old little person that, uh, you know, I'm not old little Johnny Strapazon who flunked second grade. Now, in a way, that's a part of who I am, but I'm brand new now. Now, that stuff still has impact on me. It still tries to rise up and tell me that's who I am. But that's not really who I am anymore. And I can listen to it and act like that if I want to, but I can never become that person again. And my life is hidden in Christ and God. And I need to be confident in that. I don't need to keep asking that question. Now, some people, they've got 20 years, they have one year of, of Christian experience 20 times. They're going around the same issues all the time. In fact, I would say a whole lot of people in our churches, this is where they are. They're still trying, oh, am I safe? Uh, am I not? Am I safe? Uh, I guess that's why that's lines here. I'm in, I'm out. I'm in, I'm out. They never get out of the starting gate. And so they never have any impact. If you have come to know Jesus, you have been given a new identity. The old you died, and God birthed the new one in the twinkling of an eye. He made you new. You were born again. You're not being born again. You were born again. So you've got to become, you've got to become confident in the fact that I have a new identity in Christ. Enemy's going to remind me of the old guy all the time. He's going to tempt me to go live like that guy all the time. But I can never be that old guy again. Isn't that good? Some of you are laboring so much under trying to become this new creation. You already are. Let it begin to live, live the new life. Second thing is that you were, at the moment, that the moment you received Jesus, now catch me, at the moment you received Jesus, you were given a new purpose. I don't know what your life was all about before mine was about playing basketball, which was a little short-sighted. I was a little too short and a little too slow. Other than that, I was pretty good. See, I have a new direction for my life. In Matthew 4.18, let's go to Matthew 4.18, first book in the New Testament, easy to find, Matthew 4.18. Matthew 4, verse 18, says this. As Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net in the lake, for they were fishermen. Jesus says, says come follow me, Jesus said and I'll make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. You know, I don't know what you were up to before you met Jesus, but when you came to know Jesus, he gave you a purpose. And your purpose now is to help people come to know him. It's to fish for people. And whether you're going to be a sound technician or you're going to be the one who puts the first person on Mars, your real purpose is to help people come to know Jesus while you're doing that other thing. If it's teaching or being a lawyer 
or being an entrepreneur, your purpose now is to help people come to know Jesus. And that's what you do while you're doing the other. You got a new purpose, man. That overrides everything. But you know what? You need to get really good at what you do. If you're going to be a salesman, you ought to strive to be the best salesman the world's ever seen. If you're going to be a teacher, you ought to be the, you ought to be the person who every year they have to go, do we, we have to give it to her again? That people have to struggle with not giving it to you. You don't need to be mediocre in that. See, a lot of people think, well, my purpose is to help people come to know Jesus, so I'm going to be not very good at this. But the problem with that is you have no authority in people's lives anymore. And they see you as pretty well worthless. Hence, they see what you're about as worthless. You'd be the best you could be, man. And you should be able to do that because you're a new creation in Jesus. Ask him to help you. See, not only have a new, I have a new direction for my life now, I'm a co-laborer with God. Now check this out. Um, and that's in uh, 1 Corinthians 3. I'm a co-laborer with him. I'm a co-worker with God. Now, let me tell you the whole thing before you freak out. I can't do anything, John. Well, I understand that, okay? I got that. Okay, I got it that I can do all things through Christ. Okay, I got that one. But there's something else here that you need to, be, you need to catch. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, and we're going to begin this in um, verse 5. Paul says, um, What after all is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each, ta each to his task. You know, they're having a, the people are having a, a, they're having a fight, a discussion, a heated discussion over who's the best preacher. Now, this is very hypothetical. People would never do this. <laughs> but, so, this was, hey, man, I, I'm of Apollos. Well, dude, I'm, I'm Paul's guy. And Paul says, I planted the seed. Apollos watered, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes it grow. The man who plants and the man who waters has one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay a foundation other than Christ. Okay, now check this out. I want you to focus in on, on this. So neither he... Wait, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each rewarding according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Now here's the situation. I don't know if you've noticed yet or not, but cornfields do not come up on their own. Only weeds come up on their own. Weeds don't need water. They just come. And how God has set things up is that we, you know, the, the farmer, he plants the seed. He buys the seed. He researches the seed. He buys the seed. He tries to get that at the best price. He's good at what he does. He plants the seed. He knows when to do that. He waters the seed, makes sure it gets enough. He weeds the seed. And then it grows. Now, what you need to catch is, if the farmer did all of that and God wasn't behind the spark of life 
and God wasn't making it grow, it wouldn't grow. But God has set things up in such a way that if the farmer doesn't do what he's supposed to do, it isn't going to grow either. Are you with me? Now, we're not taking God's glory. Now, some of you be afraid we're taking God's glory away from him with this. No, we're not. When we do what we're supposed to do, we give God glory. You know, if you're going to get good grades, you don't need to just sit down and pray all the time. That'll help. But you better study. And God will honor that. What I found worked for me was when I began to pray before I studied. I said, God, help me. Man, help me to know what I need to know here. Help me to understand this. And when I came up against tough stuff, I'd cry out to God and say, God, I don't get this. Help me. You know, you're not really going to come. Your, your professor's not ever going to throw anything at you that God's going to go, hmm, hadn't thought about that. <laughs> we should have paid more attention to that one. Nothing's outside his realm. Involve God in your life. And see, what I began to do is I prayed before. I prayed while I, was, while I studied. And then when I got to the test, I didn't ask God for justice. I asked him for mercy. <laughs> you don't want a guy to get a good guy. In, in seminary, we pray before tests, which only somehow lowered the anxiety. And when I get up and say, Lord, I pray that everybody in the room would do as well as they deserve. And I'm like, no, I don't want that. I want grace. And there'll be times I come up against a question and I just say, God, help me. Help me remember this. And sometimes I did and other times I was reminded that it would have been good if I had studied that before. God's playing for the, God's trying to teach me to be a man who works hard. If he gives it all to me, I won't. Because he's developing me as a person. So, you are God's fellow workers. Some of the people, now I don't know how all this works, but prayer changes things, people. And there's some things if you don't pray about, they're not going to happen. And there's some people, if we don't pray for and share with, I don't know what to do with this exactly. And I don't know how all this works. But you and I are a part of this happening because we're God's fellow worker. That's pretty cool. It's kind of scary, but it's pretty cool. And I need to be confident in that. I'm God's fellow worker, so I can get after it. I need to get after it. When the coach puts you in the game, he doesn't want you wondering whether you should be a guard or, or a forward, whether you like that play or not. He wants you to play. Get after it. I remember the coach yelling at me one time, shoot the ball, because I was a good shooter. And I was thinking about passing it around. You know, He's like, you're not in the game to pass the ball. You're in the game to shoot the ball. OK. Well, if you're a shooter, shoot. And be confident. Not arrogant, but confident. If you're not, you're just not going to get done what you need to get done. See, guys, I'm a Christ follower who happens to be a minister. See, I'm not a, I used to sell cars. I sold used cars for seven years. I remember a new Christian coming up to me one time. He said, he was in my group. And he said, dude, how can you be a used car salesman and be a Christian? Well, some of the biggest crooks I met were the customers. They're trying to cheat you. But I wasn't ever at any point a car salesman who just happened to be a believer 
or a lawyer who just happened to be a believer, or a nurse or a doctor who just happens to be a believer. I'm a follower of Jesus who just happens to make his living as a minister. I'm a follower of Jesus who just happens to be a salesperson. And, and that may sound like a subtle difference, but it's a huge difference. Your gods, you've been given a new purpose. I gotta hurry. Number three, you, are, you have been, I, when I, the moment I received Jesus, I was given influence. Influence I didn't deserve, but I was given it. Now, look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 14 through 21. Y'all still there? 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 21. And I'm picking it up a little bit in the middle here, so you'll want to read uh, before this, but for the sake of time, I'm picking it up here in the middle. For, for Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Now look, you're going to always deal with the fact that Jesus isn't the only way to God. Just, just, just realize that. People are going to say that. That's one of the enemy's big deals because if he can get other people on the wrong track, that's it. So this isn't a fight that just your generation is fighting. But you are fighting it hard. But that's just going to be one of those. But see, it says here we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. Okay, that's just something you need to know. And he says, so, because this is true, that's why the so is there. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's ours. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he, was, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are, because all of this is true, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now I'm going to stop there. The, the moment you received Christ, you were given influence. See, you and I are now ambassadors for Christ. Now, we don't really think much about being an ambassador now, so I think this is a, is a term that's a little bit unfamiliar with us. So I want to talk about this for a minute. See, an ambassador, because you really need to know this, because this is who you are now. An ambassador is a diplomatic official of the highest rank sent by one country as its long-term representative to another country. President Obama could call up today and say, John, I've heard a lot about you. I'd like you to be the ambassador to Antarctica. <laughs> Figured I was qualified for that one. Just checking to see if you're not asleep. <laughs> Some things about ambassadors. Ambassadors are chosen and appointed by one with the authority to do so. Okay? God has the authority to do that. Second thing is that ambassadors are protected. An ambassador must be a citizen of the nation he or she represents. The nation supplies their ambassadors every need and stands ready to protect them. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. Philippians 3.20 says that our citizenship is in heaven. Have you seen these not-of-this-world stickers? They're a little bit bizarre, but... Yeah, see, 
You and I, although we live here, this is not our country. We have a green card for here, but this is not our home. We are here as an ambassador of God. Ambassadors are also held accountable. They represent their countries and they say what they're instructed to say. They know that they must one day give an account of their work. Therefore, I'm a diplomat for the living God. I should give you confidence. I'm God's representative to the human race with whomever, wherever, or whenever. And I need to get after it. Well, I don't know, God, if you should have chosen me. I don't think, you know, I think Moses tried that one on God. <laughs> think we got a precedent on the answer for that? And you need to get after it. You're an ambassador to your family. You're an ambassador to your classes. You're an ambassador to your school. You're an ambassador to the place where you work. You're an ambassador to your dorm. You're an ambassador to your apartment complex. You're an ambassador to your sorority. You're an ambassador to, to your fraternity. You're an ambassador to your clubs. You're an ambassador to your professors. You're an ambassador to the person who sells the Slurpees at the 7-Eleven. Because this is who you are. And you want to get after it. If you're going to widen your world, you've got to realize I'm an ambassador to these people. I don't need to just be always afraid and always insecure about this. God has given you that. And by the way, he's going to hold you accountable for that. Because that's ambassadors are held accountable for what they do and say. Now, the fourth thing is that how I live my life now matters. Because these are true, how I live my life really does matter. And Matthew 5, and look, you know, God, I'll become one of your ambassadors when I graduate that ambassador class. No, you are right now. God, I'll, I'll, I'll do that when, I, when I'm better, when I get my life together. No, you're right now in the midst of all of your hurts and hang-ups and habits that aren't good, you're, you're, you're ambassador for Jesus right now. You see, in Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16, it says, you are the salt of the earth. That's you and me. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You're the salt of the earth. You're not going to become the salt. You are the salt. Right now. And then he says, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in a house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. As you live your life, they'll see who you are. See, because doing good deeds is a part of who we are. We don't do good for God to like us. We do good because that's our nature. I have a little dog, Sophie. She's a Karen Terrier. She's a Toto dog. I live with Sophie. Sophie <laughs> is her own dog. I tell Sophie to come and she goes, why? But there's something true about Sophie. She barks. She never moves. She never meows. She never welcomes me when I come in. Hello, John. How are you? <laughs> and you know why she barks? 
because it's her nature to bark. You do good works because it's your nature to do them, because it's who you are. You don't do them to get God to like you. He already likes you. It should just come out of you. Wanting to help people should just be natural to you. Now, as a believer, these are true of you. You are the salt of the earth. You right now are the light of the world. And you can hide that if you want, but the light's still lit when it's under the bowl. That's already who you are. And how you live your life matters. Now, when people engage us, when people engage us, they get to know us. There's something in my pocket here. When they get to know us, they unwrap our life. Just like I'm going to unwrap this wonderful candy bar that Melinda gave me. And I'm going to taste this. Chewy. Crunchy. Semi-sweet. Fruity. Nutty. Those things are all true about this. And when people meet you, they unwrap your life and taste you. Can't help it. Who you are, they're going to taste it. You're nutty, chewy, <laughs> not too sweet, not too salty. You see, there are three big things that happen when people engage us. The first thing is this, is that interest in Jesus is aroused. Because of coming to know us, there's something different about us. And you don't have to make that happen. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Be who you are. Now, some of us are, need to work on who we are. We need to allow God to work on who we are. But until that happens, you'll never be confident. So when people meet you, they either, you know, take a step maybe toward Jesus. The second thing could be that after meeting you, <laughs> they don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. Well, um, I was at Walmart on a Sunday one time. Not Walmart, Sam's. You got Sam's in California? And um, I was at Sam's and checking out. This girl seemed to be kind of unhappy. And so I said, you know, hey, how's it going today? I hate Sundays. I said, well, why do you hate Sundays? She said, Sunday's the worst day of the week to work here because all these Christians come from church and then they, they yell at us about working on Sunday that we shouldn't even be working. They, they treat us terrible. And I'm thinking now, they're criticizing you for working on Sunday, but they're shopping on Sunday. There's a disconnect here. But she, her opinion... She'd unwrapped enough lives. She didn't want to have anything to do with it. What a tragedy. What a horrible thing. So I got the first two. First one is interest in Jesus is aroused. The second one is interest in Jesus is dampened. And the third thing is nothing happens either way. They've engaged with you, and they're no better or worse for the engagement. You know, I, have, I, I had an experience the other day. Do you guys have Panera out here? Okay, I was at Panera, and there was this long line. I'd already gotten through the long line. And I don't know why they don't have them. I don't have one drink station. People cry. They just got two people working. You know, there's a cast of thousands trying to get into the place. You know, and, and I'm thinking, haven't you, don't you know this happens every... Anyway, moving along, this guy's standing in line, and I'm doing some stuff. And all of a sudden, this guy says, hey! There's a line here. What are you doing? I'm like, 
So I'm thinking, oh, this will be good. So now he's got my attention. And there's this old man. I mean, he's old. I mean, old. And he said, hey, you know, there's a wine here. You just walked right up. And this guy just came in. And nobody was up here at this other guy's. He just walked up there and gave his order. And this guy freaked out about it. I mean, he's yelling at the guy. And when the guy comes back, he yells at him again. And you know what? He was right. The guy shouldn't have done that. It was his right. But should he have done that? And sometimes as believers, we can get indignant about things, and we could be right, but we've done the absolute wrong thing in that situation. Well, they should refund all my money. Then we just chew them up and spit them out, and your authority in their life and anybody around them is gone down the toilet. See, I'm a volatile person. Some of you are not. I am. And my wife has helped me. She'll say, John, is that how you think, is that how you want to be remembered? I'm like, yeah, but they should have done it differently. <laughs> but see, as an ambassador for Jesus, I'm thinking differently in this situation. And I don't mean you have to be run over. But there are ways to handle things. And there are other ways to handle things. So when they meet you, one of these three things is going to happen. Now, there's something else. Neil, how much more time have I got? Okay, lunch will be served in here then? Okay, no, I'm kidding. I want you to see something, though, that I think is very key. We're going to go back to 2 Corinthians 5.16. I want you to see something there. Now, guys, your life really makes a difference in how you live it. You don't live it so Jesus will like you. You don't live it so you can earn brownie points with God. You live it the right way because that's who you are. Because people are more important than things. And what we tend to do is love things and use people. And what we really need to do is love people and use things. Road rage is really not right for an ambassador of Jesus. If that starts to hit, you need to pull off and get into in and out and get you a Coke or something and cool off. <laughs> I want you to see something. In 516... 2 Corinthians, not 1 Corinthians, for those of you who are in 1 Corinthians like I am. 2 Corinthians 5.16 says, and I think this is something we can breeze over, but I think it's really important. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ this way, we do so no longer. What do you think it means to regard people from a worldly point of view? Anybody? Anybody? Adults, you can answer if you'd like. See them just for uh, just the sum total of who they were before. Yeah. Just see them as humans. I mean, they're just sort of there. Anybody want to add to that? Yeah. See what they can do for you. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. See what they can do for me. If I get around them, what could they do for me? Yeah. To objects sort of to be kind of used. What else would be seeing people from a worldly point of view? How would that play out? What would that look like? Just seeing them for their faults. Seeing them for their faults? Yeah. Because their faults really bother me. Now, my faults don't bother me that much, but yours really bother me. Seeing them as uh, objects, seeing them in the way you're going around, 
Yeah, there are more cars on the freeway. Don't these people ever stay home while you're driving along? You ever thought about that? Yeah. Now, and it says we also consider Jesus this way. What does it mean to consider, what does it look like to consider Jesus from a worldly point of view? Okay, he's a means to an end. He can get me my fire insurance policy. Buy me heaven. I'm not sure about this Jesus, but I want to be nice to him because he may be important in the end. What else? Maybe just another person, not like this, not the son of God, just like a normal human being. Yeah, he's a good guy. He's a good teacher. You ever heard that one? Just a guy who happened to be one of the standouts in history. You know, he was the Michael Jordan of the spiritual realm. I never thought about that that way. <laughs> what else? Anything else? Have you ever thought it's strange that when people cuss, they don't use Muhammad's name? Oh, Muhammad. I've never heard that. Or Buddha's name. I'll just leave that one with you. You can think about that one. I mean, I see Muslims cussing it using Jesus' name. And I'm, I'm thinking, wait a minute. Let's, 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 wait a minute here. You know? You ever thought about that? No, 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 no. Uh, that's our guy. <laughs> you use your guy. <laughs> if anybody does that, write me. Text me on that one, see how that works out. I may try it. I'll let you know. I don't know about you, but before I came to know Jesus, I threw Jesus' name all over the place. Because he wasn't that special. But when you came to know Christ, it says we don't treat people from a worldly point of view. We don't treat Jesus from a worldly point of view. I'm always, my mother loves to watch game shows. She'd watch them 24 hours a day. And I'm, I'm, it's always interesting how when people get up on that stage with uh, Drew Carey, oh my God. And over and over and over again with no thought of what they're doing. And, and, and even Christians, oh my Lord, oh my, I'm thinking, and I'm not trying to be legalistic here. This is something that comes out of your heart. Jesus, has more than a word to me now, man. No, he's, he's not a name to be used in the rhyme of a song unless it's a song honoring him. Because I've changed and how I live my life now matters. How I treat people. You know, before, treating people from a worldly point of view means I see them as finite and they're temporary. How I treat them is important. How I, or another way of, of, of seeing people from a worldly point of view that I wrote down was how I treat them is unimportant other than to be polite. Um, my feelings and desires are more important than theirs. I know I float in and out of that one, but I can ignore them if I so desire. Cut them off. 
Using them is okay if I need to. People are a freak of nature. You know that, don't you? It just so happened that molecules came together in such a way that, you know, it's, it's, it's from goo to you by way of the zoo. Did you get that? You want to write that down? I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to be unscientific here, but the upshot of that is that we just sort of happened. Um, and whether they know Jesus or not, it's not any of my business. Their greatest need may or may not be knowing Jesus. Their greatest need might be a boyfriend. Or their greatest need might be a new job. And that may be a need that they have. But see, when I see it from a worldly point of view, that's their greatest need. That makes sense? And, and here's some things toward Jesus from a poorly point of view. Jesus may be nice, but he's not necessary for everyone. Mm, throw his name around carelessly. Uh, people who are serious about Jesus are a little weird. Life is about other things. Family, education, traveling, money. Surely not Jesus. He's a good man, but that's about it. And if he's important down the road, he'll cut me a break. And what does it mean to no longer see people from a worldly point of view? Here's some thoughts I had. Um, beginning to see God, think people as God sees them. Um, I don't know how to do that. I have to ask God to help me do that. Um, because I spend most of my time thinking about me. And if some of you knew how little other people thought about you, you wouldn't be so worried about it. Because what most people are thinking about is themselves. Oh, I wonder what I should. How do I look in that situation? I wonder, and you're thinking, Man, they must have thought what I said was really stupid, and they, had, they, don't even, they didn't even hear what you said because they're thinking about what they said. We, we spend too much time on them. Anyway, that's just a, that's free. That one's... Uh, people are fi infinite. They will live forever with or without God. People were created by him to know him. Everybody, even that idiot who sits behind you in chemistry class. I work to consider their desires above my own. I look out for them and not just myself. And everyone's greatest need is to know Jesus. Those are just some thoughts. And regarding Jesus no longer from a worldly point of view, here's my thoughts. I believe that he's the creator of everything. It's through his death that I'm made right with God. He is God. His name is to be honored and his desires are paramount. Now, that didn't come to you as standard equipment. That's something that changes as time goes on. As you face situations you, and, and you make the right choice, things begin to click for you. you don't, it doesn't all happen at first. It begins to click in your life. Now, in the, in, I see things and people in Jesus differently. Now, that's just kind of what that means. I have a flip-flop. And in the flow of life, um, are y'all still with me? Still hanging in there? A little bit more? Of course, you can't say no, right? <laughs> Said no. Some of you can. You can leave if you like. Um, I actually had a, had a woman disagree with me one time as when I was speaking. It was a real interesting thing. I was speaking about something, and she said, I totally disagree with you. Okay. Um, that's not what most speakers are looking for. Uh, you know, guys, in the flow of life, as you're going to class, as you're going to work, as you're driving to school, as you're living your life, you are going to encounter basically three kinds of people. And 
and these are big categories, okay? And the first one, and they're not in any order, okay? But the first one is landscape people. And these people are the ones who fill in the background. Other drivers on the highway, fans at the ball game. You know, it's not comfortable when we're in a 70,000 seat stadium and there's 5,000 people. And we, because it's a part of the landscape to have all the people there. I don't know all these people, but I feel better about it when they're all here, right? They're part of the landscape. Um, other shoppers at the mall. These people are just part of the landscape. They're just filling out the landscape as I go along. So that's one group of people you're going to engage, that you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna encounter. The second is machine people. These are people who um, provide a service for me. Wait staff people. Uh, Checkers, repairmen, you know, the woman who sells you your super duper big gulp at Circle K. These are machine people. They just provide a service for us. Could be your professors. They're providing a service for me. So that's the second kind of people that we will encounter, big group of people. Every day, pretty much. The third group of people are real people. And real people are this. Real people are those I know, ones I have a relationship. This could be deep or shallow. Acquaintances. They've, they have jumped out of the scenery. They're not just a part of the backdrop of my life. They've now walked onto the stage of my life. Now they've become, you know, a professor could have been a machine per person for the first few weeks. And then maybe you went to see this person to help you with something. And boom, all of a sudden they've become real. Because you have sort of a, now when you see them, you kind of look at each other. And you, you kind of connect a little bit. So there's three basically big kinds of people. Now, if you're going to be who you need to be, you'll be tempted to see everyone from a worldly point of view. And how I see them will determine to a great degree how I'm going to treat them. If I see them as a machine person, eh, it's not important that I talk to them. What's important is they give me the right change. And I get the right order. Which is important, but you understand what I'm saying? Now, you can't know everyone. You just can't. It's impossible. I've read some things that says the average person can have about eight or nine close friends. And if you meet a person who's already got their eight or nine, you're not getting in. You've got to get somebody out. That's a joke. <laughs> hey, I got my eight. I'll let you know when somebody drops off. Um, <laughs> Take a number. Um, but, 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 now stay with me. Um, we can have a lot of acquaintances, but knowing people well is, is, a, is a real finite number. And uh, you can't know everyone, but you can treat everyone as if they were real. You may not can know them, but you can treat them that way. And you want to do your best to treat everybody as real. Everyone, now listen to me on this. Everyone has a family. Everyone has a backstory. Everybody you engage or you see has hopes and dreams and desires just like you do. Everybody has a mama who loves them, who had hopes and dreams for them when they were born. And everybody, everybody is loved by God as much as he loves you. And if you're going to widen your world, you need to begin to treat everybody as if they're real.
Now again, they are probably not going to become a part of your inner circle, the people you can know, but you can treat them. You don't see them now and treat them from a worldly point of view. And here's some ideas on how to do this. Find out people's names. When someone comes to wait on you, stop a minute and say, hey, tell me your name. And in most situations, things will change between you and them. Nobody will be able to define it or quantify it, but it'll be a little bit different. Now, sometimes they'll be frightened by that. Because they don't want anybody to know How'd you get my name? Well, it's right there on your chest. Oh, you ever done that anybody? And they're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and even that changes the situation. When you go to 7-Eleven, you're getting your Slurpee. Say, hey, thanks, Sally. Smile at people. Make it your goal to make things better because you were there than they were before you came. That when you are there, the air is a little clearer. It's a little sweeter. It's a little kinder. Because that's who you are. You're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. And these kind of things open up opportunities to share Jesus with people. But if you continue to see them as a part of the landscape or just as machine people, it won't make any difference in their life. And, and even though you may not get a chance to share Jesus with someone, if you have made their life better for those few moments, that's a good thing. Life is hard, guys. And because of who you are, the love of Jesus will naturally flow out to you on them. Treat them like that. Treat them like a person, like you'd want to be treated. Ask questions. Hey, how long have you been doing this? I mean, if there's, if there's 15 people behind you in line, don't do that. Because the rest of the landscape is going to eat you up. <laughs> but if they're by themselves, say, hey, I, how long have you been doing this? You like this job? You know, and you'll sense when the conversation's kind of over, and you'll sense if they want to engage, and if they don't, eh, hey, thanks. And you can say thanks. Well, they're supposed to do that. That's their job. Okay, I get it. But that's not your job. And you see, guys, you know, one day I asked myself, I said, you know, something's really funny. Why did lost people want to be around Jesus, but they don't want to be around me? Have you ever wondered about that? I mean, the religious people were like, get out of here, Jesus. But the lost people were like, they couldn't get enough of him. Why was that? I've never read a book on that. Have you, Brad? And I, I didn't know it was just a question. I, um, and so I, said, I started praying, God, help me to be, I, I, don't, know, I don't know how to do this. There's no course that I know that's offered on this. Help me to be the kind of person that lost people want to be around. And, you know, the gospel is going to make us offensive. But we don't need to add to that by what we say and what we do and what we wear. If people are going to be offended, let them be offended by the gospel, not because you don't brush your teeth. 
or you have an opinion and you'll share it with everyone all the time. Or you think political opinions are more important than anything else. If you want to kill a person who had an opportunity to know Jesus through you, you bring that stuff up and start talking about that. You know, people can sense acceptance and rejection and judgment. They just sense it. They smell it. It's in the air. It's all over you and me. What can I do to be more like Jesus? Ask him. And look, you can't fake this. You just have to ask God to change you. Now, several years ago, I was with a football team at a bowl game at the Alamo Bowl in San Antonio. And, I, and I'd already been asked by one of the coaches to do a Christmas service for the whole entourage. And bowl games, teams don't make money at bowl games because they take so many people with them. Well, the chancellor was in this meeting. The president was there. All the wives, all the dignitaries from the school. And I was nervous as a cat on a hot tin roof. What am I going to say? And I was praying. In fact, it was the night before, because I, I was still struggling with this, you know. And the Lord took me to what's become one of my life verses, Acts 20, 24. And I want you to turn there to Acts 20, 24. And uh, the Lord clearly said this to me. A situation here, Paul is facing his death. And what was more important to Paul was this than his life. And he says, however, that's, so he's referring to something here. Let's pick it up now. I consider my life as worth nothing to me if I may only finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to God's judgment. to God's anger, to God's frustration with us. No, what does it say? To God's grace. And John said to me, or God said to me, give him my grace. Tell him I love him. And folks, that's what we're supposed to do. There will come a time when they will face judgment. And God will handle that. And he knows how to handle that. I think I do sometimes. You know, God, I, I, I think I know what to do with this guy. But that's not the task I've been given. I've been given a task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. And if you're going to widen your world, you're going to have to become a person who reeks of grace, who smells like grace, who sounds like grace. That doesn't mean you have to accept everything everybody's doing. That doesn't mean you have to applaud everything everybody's doing. But you need to give them God's grace. Father, thanks for the time we've had together today. I pray, Lord, that <clears throat> as I go my way, that you would help me, Lord, to look and sound and smell like you in a way.
Lord, that I would have this desire to be your ambassador, to give people grace as I meet them. Lord, help me to make the trail of my life a better trail than it was before I took it. Lord, tomorrow as I walk through the airport in LA with those thousands of people who line the landscape, help me to remember they're all real. And as I buy a burger or whatever I do, help me to remember that the person who fried it up is real. Help me to remember the person who took my order, gave me my change, is real. And help me, Lord, to exude that to them. God, help me to be like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, God, amen.